Hey, I'm Justin Anderson, lead pastor at Icon Church. Thanks for joining us for our series through Romans that we're calling Straight No Chaser. It is a look at the first seven chapters of the book of Romans. If you want more information, go to iconchurch.org. Hey, Icon, good to see you today. Uh, we are back in Romans again. We have a couple more weeks left in this series, uh, and we're wrapping up chapter three. Now, the beginning of chapter three was a bit much, right? Uh, Paul uh, is at his straight no chaser best in Romans chapter three. It is kind of famous, in fact, for its intensity. And so we're going to wrap up Paul's thought here in Romans chapter three, but I want to do just a little bit of recap, right? So remember that the main tension that's happening in this church that Paul is speaking to is this racial tension that's happening around cultural norms, right? So again, real quick recap, uh, the Jews started this church. They were sent away by Claudius. They start kind of coming back. As they come back, they realize the church in Rome has become a kind of a more Gentilized church in terms of its practices and norms. The Jews come back and go, wait a second, this isn't how we do things. This is not right. And we're the Jews. We get to decide who does what and what it all looks like. Now, cultural norms um, and kind of ways of being and practices and, and kind of how we live our life is always based upon, whether implicit or explicit, uh, based upon values, uh, sometimes uh, uh, like actual philosophy or theology. And in this case, it was theological for the Jews, right? Like they had this long history with God, the story uh, uh, of the Old Testament in which they have this really ongoing relationship with God, a real identity around who they are and their relationship with God. And so they kind of assumed uh, that they had this kind of special relationship, this special place in God's story. And Paul disagrees, right? So as they're kind of dealing with some of these tensions, Paul is reminding them, both Jews and non-Jews that are hearing this, uh, this letter being read, reminding them of their sameness, right? Like that, that's Paul's essential uh, argument here is that the Jews aren't special, the, the non-Jews aren't special, though they're probably at this point not arguing for that, um, but that everybody's in the same boat, right? So Romans 3 in particular is Paul saying, um, you're all on the same page in terms of your culpability, in terms of your sin, and in terms of your need. Now, we uh, kind of went through this Q&A that Paul did at the beginning of Romans 3, and then this long list of Old Testament passages basically about how screwed we are, okay? About how we, no one seeks God, no one understands, all of our mouths are full of lies, our, our feet are swift to shed blood, and on and on and on. We're going to kind of recap that a little bit. But here's the thing. Um, today's message is going to be mostly good news. And, and that's, I'll be honest, like that's not really my thing, right? Good news. And so the, this is a bit of a stretch for me. So just kind of go with it, if you will. Um, but over and over and over, Paul is going to talk about the righteousness of God. Okay. And righteousness can be kind of a Bible term sometimes that, that is not altogether clear what it means. And we can kind of, uh, as I did for most of my growing up, think about righteousness as just rightness, like being right, not wrong. And so the righteousness of God or my righteousness or lack of righteousness 
is simply my lack of being right uh, and it, it being replaced with being wrong, basically. Okay, right and wrong, kind of an idea. And that, that's a piece of it, certainly, but it's much, much bigger than that, especially um, when Paul talks about the righteousness of God. And so how I want us to think about the righteousness of God is not just his rightness or his purity or the lack of sin in him, all true, but it's bigger than that. It is, it is what makes God awesome and perfect. It's what makes God the kind of God we want to be with and to be loved by. So the righteousness of God is, is kind of this big junk drawer term for everything that's great about God that, that should draw us to him. Okay, so in the rest of this passage, and we're going to kind of start back up in verse 9, but the rest of chapter 3, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at uh, the proactive righteousness of God. We're going to look at the providential righteousness of God. And we're going to look at the patient righteousness of God. So the proactive, providential, and patient righteousness of God. See what happens when you give me a couple weeks off? Oh man, everything starts with a P. It's a good day. Okay, so we're going to jump in. Uh, in verse 9. So Romans chapter 3, verse 9, uh, we'll start with the proactive righteousness of God. So Paul is finishing up this little Q&A. says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And then he says, as it is written. And this long list of Old Testament references. We're going to read through them, and then I want to talk about it. It says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. We're going to come back to that. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, Paul, not, uh, not a motiva motivational speaker, not his thing, right? Paul is going straight, no chaser here, telling the people, both Jews and Greeks, listen, this is who you are, and more importantly, Jews, this is what the Old Testament has been saying about you this whole time. So if you think for a second that I'm here telling you some new thing that we've always thought of ourselves as Jews, as these great people, um, and now all of a sudden I'm saying, no, you're the same. No, that's not the case. The Bible has always said this. The Old Testament, this has always been the testimony of God's word about you, that you are not righteous and none of you are, that you don't understand and that no one even seeks for God. I think that's the toughest one, right? I think for many of us, that's the one maybe that doesn't exactly jive with our lived reality. Okay? So we can read the rest of them and go, yeah, like a lot of, lot of lying out there. The, the, you know, tongues full of deceit and feet swift to shed blood. We see a lot of pain and a lot of misery and a lot of suffering in the world. So maybe some of the other stuff we go, okay, yeah, behaviorally we see this. But man, no one seeks God? Like, come on, Paul, that's, that's a step too far. I, I've seen lots of people seeking God, lots of people praying, lots of people thinking hard and thinking well about God, lots of people pursuing God. I mean, in the church, we call them seekers, 
right? So how, how do we have seekers if no one seeks God, right? And so we may have a, have kind of have struggle, struggle with that one verse. In fact, some of you might be going, uh, I, I'm a seeker. Like, I, I think I'm seeking for God, or maybe I have found God, and I found him because I was seeking. Tim Keller has a, a, great, a great line on this passage. He says this. He says, Paul isn't saying no one seeks for spiritual blessings, or no one seeks God to answer their prayers, or no one is seeking to have spiritual power or peace or experiences. He does not say these things because many, many people do them. What Paul is saying is, no one, prompted by their own decision and acting in their own ability, wants to find God. So, here's the thing. You can have uh, intellectual curiosity about God. You, you can even have a conviction that God exists, but that doesn't mean you are seeking him. Right? In fact, keeping the idea of God in the world of the abstract and of philosophy or even theology is a pretty great way to keep God at a distance. In fact, just go study philosophy or even theology in college or a master's degree, and you will find a whole bunch of people who talk a lot about God from over there. Right? So just because we're thinking about God doesn't, doesn't mean we're seeking God. Just because we want things from God and are seeking things from God doesn't mean we are seeking God himself, right? So we may feel the need for some sort of spiritual experience because of trauma we've experienced or some great pain in our life. And so we're seeking comfort from God. We might be kind of looking for and needing peace from God to deal with some crippling anxiety in our life or answer to some life question in order to direct our path. But none of that is actually seeking God, right? So I use this illustration all the time, but often we treat God like a vending machine right? So we kind of feel like if we can just put in the correct change and press A4, we'll, we'll get our Fritos. And it's really the Fritos that we want. Um, and it's not the vending machine. The vending machine is not the point. The Fritos are the point. And so we, we build these practices. We build these ideas about what we have to do in order to get the Fritos. And so whether that's we pray or we try to be good or we go to church every once in a while or whatever it is, that's, that's us putting in the correct change. And if we can just press A4 correctly, say the right words, do the right things in the right order, then we should get our Fritos. And so that's when what happens is often when we think we've got the right program and we think we've got the right correct change and we think we know it's A4 and then the Fritos don't drop, we get angry, right? Like I, I, I personally get very angry when my Fritos don't drop. This is, this is Kind of maybe some confession for me that when uh, I put the right change into a vending machine and I press the thing and it starts to turn and then it gets hung up, like I feel a rage inside of me that is completely inappropriate and overboard. But I have, I'll just admit to all of you, I have both reached up under and tried to grab said Fritos, never works. I have also sometimes looked around the hallway and put my shoulder into the machine to shake it to try to get those Fritos down 
has worked and will continue to do that. But there, there's this sense of entitlement, right? Like I put in the correct change, I pressed A4, my Fritos are hung up and I'm starving and I'm pretty hangry and, and let's, I gotta figure this out. And so we get mad at the vending machine for not doing its job and delivering on the deal that we had. And this is often how we treat God. God is the vending machine. So we don't, we don't, want, we don't want God exactly. We just want the freedoms. We just want the things. And so we do whatever we kind of think he wants from us, not to be near him, not to know him, not to be in his presence, not to seek his face, not to be a friend of God, not to be a child of God, not to be just transformed by the manifest glory of God, but because we want freedoms. And when we don't get our freedoms, not only do we get angry at God, but we question whether God exists at all, all of a sudden. Because this deal we thought we had with God isn't giving us what we want, and so we get angry and we blame God. So when Paul says no one understands, no one seeks for God, I don't think that should surprise us that much. Because in some ways, this is literally every relationship in our lives. It's not just God. So it's our wives, it's our husbands, it's our kids, it's our friends, it's our coworkers, it's our bosses, it's our employees, where, where the relationship is fundamentally transactional, right? We're not really with them for them, but we do things for them in order to get what we want from them. It's not, not, not true intimacy, it's a transaction. Okay, so Paul here says, no one understands, no one seeks God. So what's that mean? Does it mean we're just kind of out of luck? No. No, there's good news to this. The good news is that even though we don't seek God, God is seeking us. Right? So this is the situation, and God, God has a choice, right? Like he has a couple choices. One, he could have uh, kind of expected this level of purity from us and gone, okay, I, I'm, not, I'm not allowing anyone into the family. I'm not letting anyone into heaven unless they purely and completely want me and not just things from me. He could have chosen that, in which case heaven would be a pretty empty, lonely place. Right. Second, um, he could have lowered his standards and allowed us to basically use him and just kind of been okay with the idea that none of us are really there for him. Um, we just want things from him, but he's lonely and so he's cool with it and, and that uh, uh, he's just kind of coming to grips with that. Right, which would, would be kind of pathetic for God in the same way it's kind of pathetic when we do that with one another and we understand like this person's just using me, but I, I, I like to be used more than I'm uh, afraid of being alone. And so we kind of allow for this kind of unequal, borderline abusive or not borderline, altogether abusive relationship to take place because it would be way worse to be alone. But there was a third choice that God had, and this was the choice that he made. He could come get us. He could come get us. We aren't seeking him, and so he could seek us. John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So this is Jesus going like, anyone who comes to me in belief, anyone who comes to me will be fed. I'm the bread of life. I will give you the bread you need, and everybody who comes to me will be uh, satisfied. Their hunger and their thirst will be quenched. And yet you've seen me, and you don't believe because no one seeks God. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. So Jesus goes, listen, I'm here and you don't believe because no one seeks God, no one understands. So I'm, I'm telling you this, God has given, the Father has given some of you to me, and every single one that the Father has given will come to me, and I will never cast them out. For... I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Or more concisely, in John 6, 44, just four verses later, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is the proactive righteousness of God. That God looked down on us and said, none of them want me for me. They want things from me. Some of them are in outright rebellion and then angry with me when I don't give them what they want. But nobody's coming to me for me. So I've got choices. I can just sit back and wait and see if there's anybody who will eventually just come to me for me. Or I can lower my standards and just kind of, you know, let anybody in who's generally looking in my direction. Or I can go to them, call them to myself, draw them to myself, not just wait with open arms, but in a divine sense, draw them to myself so that they might experience the righteousness of God. So that, that, the good news is then that the righteousness of God, which we need so badly, is proactive. He comes to get us to give us the righteousness that we could never contrive on our own. This is the good news of God's righteousness. It's proactive. So when we won't seek, he does for us. That's number one. Number two. The providential righteousness of God. So um, skip down to uh, verse 21. And uh, this, I'm going to read through this passage, verse 21 through 25. And, uh, I, and I want you to be listening for some of the really important words, some big words, some important words, weighty words. And we're going to kind of go through it really slowly. But this is one of the most famous passages in all of the scriptures. So starting in verse 21, Paul writes, But now... But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, Paul again to the racial tension, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Okay, so this is the providential righteousness of God, or the idea that it is God providing the righteousness that we need. So Paul, again, levels the playing field by going, there's no distinction here. Everyone has sinned, Jew and Greek. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God, Jew and Greek. And everyone can be justified and redeemed by faith because of Christ's work. Jew and Greek the same. Okay, so again, leveling the playing field. But he does so, and this is what I love about Paul. He goes, listen, y'all are upset about these cultural norms and circumcision and some of this worship stuff, but let's get down to the foundation of this, which is theology. Like a, a really clear, on the Jew side, a really clear conviction that they were special, right? And in some sense, they are. Paul's already said this. You have had access, Jews, to the oracles of God, the logos of God, the, the manifest uh, order and love and word and direction of God. You have had access to that this whole time. But fundamentally, there's no distinction. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by Christ Jesus. So I want to I want to walk through some of these kind of big phrases so that we can understand this passage and what Paul thinks is the theological underpinning that makes all of this make sense. So start with this in 323 very famously for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, Paul here is writing kind of in a, a parallelism here, right? So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God are, are in parallel with one another. So they kind of mean the same thing, but we're going to see how they are also complementary to one another. So first, all have sinned. This is a, a fundamental conviction of Christianity. Now, this is not where our theology begins. That begins with creation, that we're made in the image of God. And we'll get to that here in a second. Paul's going to speak to that. But we are all culpable. We have all made decisions that do not reflect the purpose for which we were made. Right? So the idea of sin has this implication that Christians believe um, that I think is, is in itself a challenge to postmodern and uh, atheistic worldviews. Because the only way you can understand sin is if there is first um, an understanding of what is the good. Right? Because sin is anything that is a perversion of or a broken version of what is good. So implied in this idea of sin is that there is a mark to hit or a bullseye to hit. And so one of the ways in which the Bible describes sin is missing the mark, right? That there is, there is something we're shooting for, aiming at, and we have missed it by one degree or a hundred degrees, whatever the case may be, we've missed the mark, which implies there is a mark, which means that there is something for which you were created, which has all kinds of implications, right? But it's, but it's that conviction that there is a way uh, that the world was designed to work and there is a thing that you were designed to be that, that is the kind of philosophical, theological foundation upon which Christians can go, that is wrong. Whatever, whatever that is, it's wrong because it's not what God made it to be. Okay? 
This is an advantage. This is a, a, a philosophical, theological resource that Christians have that I would argue uh, uh, atheists and especially kind of postmodernists do not have. Because when you eliminate any objective truth, when you eliminate the possibility of meta-narrative or a big story that describes everything and makes sense of the world, when you eliminate that, you also eliminate any ability to say that's good and that's bad, objectively or universally. The most you can say is, I don't like that. Please don't do that to me or near me. But you cannot actually say that's bad. So this is, this is, even though Paul's going, all have sinned, it really is good news because it's reflective that there is an order to the universe and sin is chaos in the midst of order. It's chaos and brokenness in the midst of what is supposed to be orderly and together and good and healthy and helpful. So th there's, there's a, an accusation here that all have sinned. We've all missed the mark. But the implication is really, really good news. Now, the second half of that parallel um, is that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Now, again, glory of God, little like righteousness of God in the sense that it feels like kind of a churchy Bible word and we're not entirely sure what it means. So let me explain it. One way to think about the glory of God is what makes God famous or what God is known for or what God should be known for. The, the, the kind of image of God or the, the representation of God. And so what it means to glorify God then is to draw attention to the truth about God. Okay, so the glory of God is what is actually true about God. And so when we glorify him, we're revealing what is true. So Paul's saying that sin falls short of the glory of God. Think about it this way. God has made this world beautiful. He has made this world functional. He has made this world in which we can thrive when we obey him and we all kind of obey him together and, and kind of lived at that, as I love to do, the grain of the universe, right? Um, the, the way in which things are supposed to be will actually glorify God when we do that, when we are honest, when we seek the good, when we love one another, when we sacrifice one another, when we're humble. These things actually glorify God because we go, listen, this really good life-giving thing finds its source and origin in a good God who made them and is promoting them. And that makes God look good because we go, oh, wow, humility, love, sacrifice. These things came from God. These are good things. God must be good. So when we sin, and instead of being humble, we're arrogant. Instead of loving people, we tear them down. Instead of honoring people, we dehumanize them. We fall short of the glory of God. The behavior we are doing doesn't reflect the truth about who God is. It reflects some lesser version. Okay? Paul goes, we all do this all the time. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and... Okay, so that's the bad news, but we also all are justified by his grace as a gift. So justified is a legal term that simply means that we've been declared innocent of our wrongdoing. Okay, so that's good news. So Paul goes, well, we've all sinned, we've all done wrong, but we also all have been justified. We've all been declared righteous or been declared innocent. How? By his grace as a gift. Man, that on its face feels like really good news, right? Grace is good. 
Okay. So Paul goes, listen, we were justified by his grace as a gift. It means it was unearned. It means it was unmerited. It is favor from God given purely as a gift to be received with gratitude. And yet, receiving a gift with only gratitude takes a good bit of humility. Because there is something in us that wants to earn everything. We want to merit everything. We want to have a scoreboard. We want to know we deserve it. And Paul here is going, listen, the only way you can be justified in God's eyes and in, and in reality be justified is if you understand that it is completely unmerited, unearned. It's only by doing this and saying, I, I, I have nothing to cling to. I earned nothing. I did nothing. I deserve nothing that you can receive everything. So this is amazing news because if it were up to us, we'd be in a load of trouble. It would never happen. So this is the only way we could be justified is by grace. There's no question about that. And admitting that is super hard. Super hard. Just think about the last time somebody gave you a gift out of the blue, right? It's a little different when it's on your birthday or something like that. You feel you kind of deserved it. Like I lived another year. Yes, you should give me gifts. Uh, I survived against all odds. But when someone just out of nowhere does something gracious to you, gives you a gift for no good reason, especially if you had wronged that person in some way and their response to your wronging them was to give you a gift that not only did you not earn, but if anything, you earned consequence, you earned distance, you earned broken relationship from this person and they respond with a gracious gift. That's tough. It's tough to, it's tough to receive that because it, it feels like it puts you in their debt. And kind of, in a sense, it does. So how is it that we have been justified by grace as a gift? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word redemption um, has its roots, kind of theologically has its roots in the book of Exodus, where God redeemed his people Israel out of slavery. He brought them out of slavery. So redemption has the idea of liberation, uh, of, of freedom, of kind of a, a de-chaining of people. And so we have this redemption. So we are justified by grace. We are redeemed, freed from sin, freed from ourselves, freed from Satan uh, by Jesus Christ and, and as yet we don't know how that all worked but again the idea is you didn't do it God did it and he tells us how through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation say that word with me propitiation great job propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
Now, this word propitiation is a really, really powerful word. And depending on your translation, um, some translations like the, uh, the NIV translates this uh, as God's uh, kind of loving kindness or uh, certain, certain translations will translate it as expiation. And all of those ideas are in it. But I, I really think propitiation gives you the biggest sense. So expiation means the kind of removal of sin. And that's absolutely the case of what's happening here. Jesus's death on the cross uh, was sufficient to remove sin that Paul talked about from us, but there's no sense in the word expiation as to where that sin went. So yes, it's removed from us, but goes where? Propitiation has in its kind of sense um, the, the, the idea of the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus so that the sin, uh, uh, our sin came off of us and was actually put on to Jesus. And so we lose both our sin and the consequences of our sin because of Christ's work on the cross, but also that our sin and the consequence of our sin was put on Christ. That's how this happened. So we received redemption and justification by grace as a gift, but it, it wasn't something that was free. It came at a, at a great cost that Jesus Christ himself bore the weight of our sin on him for us. Like he loved us so much that he would do that for us. But, but this, is, this is the crux of it, right? Like this is literally the crux of it, the cross uh, upon which our sin and God's wrath was laid on Jesus. So this is why... I'm saying that the righteousness of God is providential in the sense that this was the divine providence of God, the divine provision of a way in which we might experience the righteousness of God. So the short version, God did it. The righteousness of God is the righteousness from God. It's the righteousness by God. It's the righteousness of God for us but it was all done by him. Therefore, the attention of our faith should be on Jesus, not on our faith. And we're going to talk about that next week quite a bit in, in Romans 4. We're going to talk a lot about what faith is and how faith works as uh, Abraham kind of being the avatar for it that Paul uses. So the righteousness of God is providential, meaning that it is entirely the work of God's providence. He provides our righteousness. Last, God's patient righteousness. Go back to verse 25, the end of verse 25. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So this word forbearance, you, you probably don't use it uh, a lot unless you're trying to not pay your student loans back and then you're applying for forbearance. Been there multiple times. Um, but this, this idea of forbearance is simply patience. That God has patience for his justice, right? Because listen to what Paul's saying. He's saying that this propitiation was by his blood to be received by faith. This, this, the cross, this, this idea of redemption and justification by grace through faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So hear this. 
there was a delay in the propitiation, in the uh, application of God's wrath on Christ. There had been thousands of years of this, at this point of human history, uh, of human sin that there had been no payment for. So God's going, listen, I'm patient. There, this, this will not go unpunished. This will not go unpaid for, but it doesn't have to happen now. God has been patient to allow people to sin without experiencing the fullness of the consequence for their sin because he had a plan all along to provide himself proactively the righteousness that we could never earn on our own. God hates sin so much and loves us so much that he couldn't simply excuse our sin but he did wait. This, this patience shows us, Paul says, it shows us his righteousness, his awesomeness, his godness. It shows us that he's the kind of God that we would want to have be our God. I, I mean, I can't imagine allowing thousands and thousands and thousands of years of human history, millions, billions, trillions of sins against one another. I mean, some of the stuff in the Old Testament is so heinous and crazy to think that God saw that, that it broke his heart to see his people sinning against his people and sinning against himself. And yet he was willing to wait and be patient because he had a plan and he didn't want to carry out the full wrath upon them at that time out of deep, deep love for them, knowing he would prepare a way one day. Verse 26 it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here, here what Paul's saying. He goes, listen, God's patience shows his righteousness. The fact that he didn't bring wrath down upon the people shows his righteousness. That's how amazing God is, that he is patient with us. And the cross shows his righteousness. So that he can be, in Paul's words, both just and the justifier. Now, catch what he means by this. Some of us get tied up on the wrath of God and, and why God needed to show wrath against sin. And, I, and I, 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 it's interesting to me that we get tied up on that given the kind of rage culture that we live in where people have wrath for everybody for everything, right? So there's a little bit of like, I, I want wrath for everybody else, but maybe just not for me. I don't know how that works exactly. But we, we seem to be outraged uh, about just about every stupid little thing these days. And so it does seem a little ironic that we come to passages about the wrath of God and are offended by that. Okay, so the reality is, Paul goes, listen, God is just, right? Meaning one, he's not going to let sin go unpunished. That would be unjust to allow sinful behavior to just be ignored. None of us would want that. When it really comes down to it, none of us would want sin to be ignored because if sin is ignored, that means sins against us are ignored. And the only people that would argue that sins against us should be ignored are people who have sinned more. And so we think we're going to be a net negative, right? Like we've done worse things than have been done against us. So we go, uh, let's just, let's just bag the whole thing. God goes, no, sin is real. Sin has hurt people. It has broken people. It has killed people. 
and I would be unjust to simply let that go. But he is not going to only kind of mete out just, uh, justice upon sin and walk away and go, well, they deserved it, though they did. Because Paul goes, he's not only just, but he is also the justifier of sin. So it, it's, it's really as if we, we can look at the cross and go, the cross gives God credibility to talk openly and angrily about sin in a way that nobody else does right? Because Jesus went to the cross to pay for those sins, Jesus is uniquely qualified to talk about how bad sin is. It was so bad he had to go to the cross, but he can talk about it because in the same breath he was willing to deal with it, right? So it's like when you're going on a vacation or a trip with a group of people and there's that one guy who insists on doing everything that's the most expensive or the nicest or the coolest and you go, well, okay, if you're going to pay for that, great. Like let's, you, you have the, you've earned the right to demand excellence if you're the one who's going to pay for the excellence. But if you're just kind of a freeloader and going, well, I only eat this or I only stay at these kinds of places, but I'm not going to pay for it, then you have no right to do that. Jesus says, sin is as terrible as you can imagine. And I will speak as strongly and, and, and as, as kind of crucially about the evils of sin because I am also the one who's going to pay for it. So he is just and he is the justifier. He is the one who solves the problem. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't leave us to figure it out. He solves. But here's what I, I want us to see about the patient righteousness of God. If, if God was willing to wait thousands of years in order to deal with sin, he is willing to wait for you where you are as you're growing on your path. Right? We, we talk all the time here at Icon about how you have to begin where you are and take the next step. What's the next step? You don't need to take five steps. You don't need to take 10 steps. I don't think you can take five or 10 steps unless God intervenes in a crazy way. What is your next step? God is patient with you. He has already paid for your sin. He has already made a way for you to be justified and he is walking patiently with you. So, God's righteousness is proactive, it is providential, and it is patient. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? This is the question. If all of this is true, that no one seeks God, so God had to be proactive, that we couldn't earn our righteousness, so God's righteousness had to be providential, and that we sin and sin and sin, and we have no hope, and so God's righteousness is also patient with us. Then in light of all that, Paul says, what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. Why would our boasting be excluded, right? Paul, Paul uses this idea of boasting as like privilege or advantage. I mean, this is, these are the words that he's been using throughout Romans, the first two chapters, right? What advantage has the Jews or what disadvantage has the Jews? Right, so this idea of boasting is about arrogance. It's about a kind of an expectation of who you are and what you get, the privileges that you think you've earned or the privileges that your name earns you or your place in society or place in the church earns you. And Paul says, all of that is excluded in the gospel. 
You have no advantages. You have no privileges above anyone else. You are desperately needy and only have a place in God's family because of the proactive, providential, patient righteousness of God. That's it. There is a way. God has made a way. There is, there is a, a drawing into the family of God, but it's entirely the work of God, which puts you in a position of great need and no advantage, no privilege, no boasting. You can't talk about who you are. You can only talk about who God is. It's excluded because the work of Christ is all that matters. And it is only faith that allows us to access that work. Faith in Christ is the only currency in God's kingdom, which should blow up any arrogance, any boasting, any assumption of privilege, any scrambling for rights or defense of our own behavior that our, our hearts want to mount for us. That before Christ, all we have is nothing. We come to him with only brokenness and sin in desperate need. And it's only when we can recognize that desperate need that we can actually have access to the justification, to the redemption that we so desire. There is nothing in, the, in us to boast about. But there is everything in Christ to boast about. So let's do that. Let's boast in the goodness of our God who looked down on his creation and said, they need me, but they will never find me. They're not even seeking me. And so I will go to them. But he looked down on his creation and said, they, they can never even muster the courage for a moment to be righteous. And so I will make them righteous by the work of my son. And he looks down on his creation and goes, man, they are slow to learn. I have given them the gospel. I have given them my son. We have, Christ has died for them, and yet they still wrestle for their rights, argue and defend themselves, try to earn my favor, favor and earn their place in the world, even though I have offered them everything. And so God is patient with us knowing that his work has to kind of run its course in our hearts to break down that desire to earn, that desire to be somebody. God goes, the only way to be somebody is to start by being nobody and understand that Jesus is the only somebody worth following. That's the invitation of the gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we are in desperate need, whether we uh, know it or not, whether we admit it or not, we come to you in need each and every day. And you come with gifts. You have justified us by grace as a gift. That every day when we wake up, it is a gift. Every, every moment that we can breathe is a gift. And our place in this world, our place in your family is a gift. Simply to be received with gratitude. May we do just that and nothing more. Simply receive the, the gift of your love, the gift of the cross with great, great gratitude and not an ounce of boasting. We ask that you would do this in our hearts because we cannot do it ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. 
During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.